and we're going. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Done Before Dawn podcast. I am your host, Isaac Skin and Bones Jones. Happy Memorial Day to all those out there. A huge thank you for the families of those who have given the ultimate sacrifice to protect this country, this country that was founded upon liberal, liberal ideals of freedom, individual rights, and individual liberties. Uh, one thing we're going to talk about today specifically is how you're supposed to educate uh, the ideals of this country to students, specifically in high school, where I will be at hopefully in the next year. I uh, just finished up my last semester of classes at Henderson State University, taking one more summer class this summer to finish out all of my curriculum, and then I will be interning in the fall, assuming that my uh, graduation application gets signed on time by my professors that I've emailed to them. So stay tuned to find out. I hope that works out okay, but should be interning this fall. Uh, one thing we're going to talk about is how to teach the uh, social sciences, the sciences that are not cut and dry, they're not math or astronomy or chemistry, they're, they, they're the re this field is the result of implicating liberal ideals of objectivity and the ideal of uh, measurement-based, data-driven um, scientific methods into a field that uh, revolves around society. So you get some really interesting uh, results coming from the social sciences from psychologists and sociologists, historians, all of these things are seeking, quote, objective truth, which is what they should be doing. But of course, they are dealing with human events and they always have a human-centered approach, which is rarely ever objective, which kind of flies in the face of the scientific uh, objective observer ideal. So um, we're gonna talk about how I think I will be dealing with that issue in class because there's not really any heated debate in algebra or science uh, at the high school level as opposed to like what to teach but we see recently um, just in this past year and a half I believe the state of Arkansas has uh, changed the standards in the social science curriculum and they've added personal finance uh, psychology and a separate African-American history requirement um, all of which I don't really personally have a problem with it's just that um, I have not really taken any classes in those fields uh, that would help me teach them, but I think I've done a lot of my own studying to hopefully be able to sit in front of a class of students and uh, teach on those subjects, no matter how rough they are. But before we jump into that, before we jump into how we're going to teach the social sciences, these, quote, soft sciences to high school students, because there is no really objective answer. You can't just run an equation and figure out um, what the best parts of government are or what uh, the role of the individual in the United States is. There's no, there's no scientific equation for that, unfortunately, so we can't really rely 100% uh, on the scientific method to give us those answers like we can in math and science, because if anybody decides to protest what you're teaching in those hard sciences, you can really just step up, use the scientific method, and prove um, what you're teaching correct or incorrect. But there's unfortunately a lot of opinion-based educating in these soft sciences, so there's one that's one thing we have to be on the lookout for. But before we jump into that, uh, we're going to give an update on the reading list. I'm currently still reading uh, Michio Kaku's Parallel Worlds. Uh, you may have seen this guy on uh, the History Channel, or I'm sorry, the Science Channel, or if you're a fan of cosmology, he's a really famous scientist. This is over Parallel Worlds, Quantum Mechanics, and the Big Bang. 
about halfway through with it. It's been a really great read. It's a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is way over my head. If I'm ever reading a history book or a um, any sort of finance book or psychology book, uh, I generally feel kind of comfortable because I'm fairly familiar with those fields in relation to what I've studied personally. But I've never I haven't taken a science or algebra class since my uh, senior year of high school, and all my classes since then have been history, economics, um, social science based. So this is a really good book, though. He, he really dumbs it down for you to understand. He talks about the future of quantum computing. talks about the future of uh, quantum mechanics in its relation to time travel, teleportation. All of it's driven by science. This guy is one of the, the, most, um, the most reputable, there we go, the most reputable cosmologists out there, right up there with Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, <coughs> uh, Sean Carroll. Uh, characters like those, he's right up there with them, one of the best authors I've come across, and he really makes these complicated subjects uh, really interesting to read. I should be done with this book by the end of this week, about halfway through. Uh, my reading for July, or sorry, excuse me, June, my reading for June is going to consist of uh, Parallel Worlds. I'm going to finish this book on the origins of the First World War. I bought this book for my European history class. Um, get that up there. Yeah. Uh, the author is Anika Mombuer. I believe that's correct, M-O-M-B-A-U-E-R. I bought this book because I'm quite familiar with World War II history, like most dudes tend to be that are interested in history in general because it's one of the most fascinating, I think the most fascinating conflict in the history of mankind. Uh, but my World War I knowledge was not, I, I did not believe that it was sufficient enough to teach a high school class on it, and I, I never really had a good, World War One teacher, and I never had a teacher that covered World War One well in high school. So I bought this book, hoping that it was just going to be a general overview for the causes of World War One. And I was kind of uh, in shock and surprise that this is not a just a general synopsis, a general overview of the causes of World War One, which is really what I wanted to read about. This is a documentation. Um, this this historian is sort of uh, assimilating all of the. Uh, historical debates on the origins of World War One into a book. So this is really a history of the debates on what started World War One. It's a good read, nonetheless. Um, they do cover obviously the the factors, the gears behind that, that started World War One. Uh, but unfortunately, um, I didn't really get to finish it. I've dug into it a little bit. I'm about 80 pages deep. I'm gonna try to finish that in June. I will finish that in June. Um, it's just, <coughs> it's sort of a, it's one of those books that not a whole lot of people read because it's really, it's a field, it's, it's what I like to call field books, field specific books, only people in that field will read it. This is not a book that you'll ever find like on a Walmart uh, bestseller shelf where people will come by and read it out of their own volition. It's really just for people that are in the field who want to have a guide to the debates uh, surrounding World War One. And a lot of the blame the book talks about got put on Germany because we tend to World War One, World War Two, we tend just to center around Germany because of the uh, mostly because of the Holocaust and tracing that back to the Treaty of Versailles and World War One and all that. Uh, we tend to blame Germany, and one of the ground-shaking historians in this book is a German who said that it was the German aristocracy, the leaders that really deceived the German people into getting into World War One, and it wasn't really the German people's fault. And so after the uh, aristocracy abdicated at the end of World War One. that the German people shouldn't have been punished for it, but it was really that the uh, the, uh, the generals and the politicians should have been punished for it. 
Uh, and of course, we know that the German people caught the brunt of the negative aspects of the Treaty of Versailles, which inevitably led to the collapse of the Weimar Republic, which led to World War II, which brings us to the next book that I'm going to finish this June that I started last year as an audio book. Uh, at work, I would listen to it, but my the my type of work got changed where I wasn't able I wasn't going to listen to I was unable to listen to audio books anymore. So I went and bought the paper copy, and this is the Death of Democracy. Also a highly rated book by Benjamin Carter Hitt. Uh, got the audio book last year, once again, for a World War II class. Um, and the audio book is really, really well read. The guy that does it is really professional. If you want to do that, that would be great. Uh, on Chapter 3 of this, about 120 pages deep. Uh, so I'll be finishing this in June, give a review on that. These two books kind of go hand in hand. And I'm really, I really am used to reading books. Um, mainly about war and about conflict and the political reasons behind it because <coughs> I think war war in and of itself is fascinating somewhat, but to me as a, uh, a social studies, uh, social scientist, can I give myself that title yet with a bachelor's degree? Probably not. As a social studies educator, I think war in itself is fascinating, but the reasons that lead up to massive conflicts are way more prudent to the average citizen to know what to look for to keep uh, the nation you're a part of from engaging in Useless, con useless conflict. Not that World War One or World War Two were useless conflicts, but that it's 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 important to know the factors that led to that. So maybe you can mitigate those as a citizen, as a voter, as a taxpayer. Um, also picked up Jordan Peterson's second book today, uh, Beyond Order: uh, Ten More Rule or Twelve Excuse Me, Twelve More Rules for Life. I finished uh, his original book, uh, Twelve Rules for Life, about three or four months ago, right around the end of 2020. Um, so th this came out, it's been a number one bestseller on Amazon, top 10 for like the last two or three weeks, or the two, two or three weeks after it was released. So I'm going to finish that in June too. Uh, I'm hoping to get these four books, um, not all four done by June. I'm definitely going to finish Parallel Worlds and I'm definitely going to finish, uh, The Origins of the First World War, um, by the end of June, but we'll have to see about the death of democracy and, uh, 12, 12 more rules for life beyond order. Uh, that's the plan. <coughs> for the reading this June, uh, <coughs> as you can see, the main basis of the Dumbest for Dawn podcast from our logo at the front of the show is really based upon intellectual and physical growth. Uh, I th honestly think that if a person wants to improve their life and give their life more meaning, they need to do three things. They need to challenge themselves physically. One, because A, that makes your life more enjoyable because you appreciate the comforts you have. Sitting at home all day when you haven't worked is not as comfortable as coming home and sitting for 20 minutes after a hard day's work. Uh, so make sure that you challenge yourself the stoic philosophy of being uncomfortable to appreciate the comfortable moments. Make sure you go to the gym, lift heavy weights, run long distances, run fast. Train yourself, make yourself the best person you can be, and along with that is the intellectual growth that comes with reading and understanding, listening to educational podcasts, hopefully podcasts like these, listening to discussions between <coughs> uh, physicists, historians, chemists, all the people that are, all this information that's out there for free, make sure you're listening to it. It's free. I think the best investment you can make dollar for dollar is in books because you're getting the edited down, clean, um, professional explanation from experts for 20 bucks. I paid, I think I paid 30, I think I paid 30 bucks for this World War One book. And there's 
probably a decade's worth of research in here just for me to sit down and read. If I, if I sat down and read this, I could probably read it in about seven or eight hours uh, for 20 bucks, and I can learn about World War One. Uh, you go over here, one of these finance books over here on the bookshelf, um, 15 bucks, you can learn how to manage your money better. It's, it's just it, the, the information <coughs> in books, uh, to me, is a little more clean, a little more digestible than uh, stuff on the Internet because – because of the barrier of entry, you tend to get a little more the high the higher barrier of in entry. You tend to get a little bit more professionalism in the written word than you do, or in, in the in the printed word, excuse me, than the written word on the internet. Um, and the uh, publishing companies have a stake in the game too, so they're really only select authors that are credible uh, or have some sort of audience. And the audience is usually gained by putting out good information. Um, so. I honestly think that one of the best investments you can make is books. Another great investment you can make, which costs zero dollars, but uh, does take a little more time, I think, is audiobooks or podcasts. Um, really, generally, I can read a book faster. I mean, not generally, I can. I can read a book faster than I can listen to it. Um, I was actually listening. I bought. <laughs> kind of sucks, but I did this. I paid twenty bucks for um, <coughs> the Moby Dick audiobook last week. Did not get. Uh, probably five minutes into it and my mind started wandering off uh, from listening because I just it was really it was really it wasn't that it was too slow but it, w it was too slow but it was not it didn't force me to give my attention to it like a book does so when you sit down and read and you're, and you're really focusing on what you're trying to learn you learn it and I mean take for instance this uh, Michio Kaku book Parallel Worlds I paid let's see Paid 17 bucks. I basically paid 20 bucks for this book, and I'm getting a lifetime's worth of research into quantum mechanics and the Big Bang and the uh, string theory and time travel, uh, general relativity. I'm getting all that for 20 bucks. And this guy probably spent thousands of dollars, thousands of hours researching this book, and I'm getting it basically essentially for free compared to what he had to put into it. So make sure you read. Third thing you need to do besides <coughs> exercising and reading is doing something that's creative. I write. I enjoy writing. I write for about half an hour minimum uh, Monday through Friday. Try to crank out at a minimum 500 words. Uh, just some sort of creative outlet. Whatever you enjoy doing, make time to do it every day. Whether it's wh whatever hobby it is, uh, set aside some time every day to just dive into it, research it, learn about it do it if, you're, if it's possible. Um, I mean, like if your hobby is surfing, you're obviously not going to be able to surf uh, every single day like before work. But set time aside to partake in stuff that you enjoy that gives your life meaning. So do that. Um, now we've got the books out of the way and the three uh, founding principles for the Dummy for Dawn podcast. This is the first episode that I'm filming solo. Um uh, lifting weights, reading, and writing are generally the three things that give my life some sort of foundation structure that makes it makes sure that, I, A, I'm in physical health because if you die young, you don't get to learn as much. B, I'm learning as much as possible. I'm reading books from professionals. And C, I am being creative and forcing my brain to think. Um, and thinking critically is one thing that is not taught uh, as much as I believe it should be in school. We sort of... <coughs> We're sort of in the in the education field, but I've noticed going through school, four years of school, is that we always emphasize critical thinking in um, all of our subjects, whether it's English, social studies, science, math, uh, 
whatever, reading, writing. We often emphasize that we as teachers need to teach critical thinking to students, but we don't really have a dedicated critical thinking class. We don't really teach our students logic, logical fallacies. Uh, it's really a crime to me that we sort of just shove we shove science, we shove history, we shove more history, we shove psychology. We put all this stuff onto our students, which obviously is needed. They need to learn about all that stuff. But we don't have a class dedicated to how to think about those subjects. And really coming out of um, the Western the Western world with the, like the, uh, the Socratic, the, the Socrateses and the Aristotles and uh, Plato's, all those... Um, all those ideals of critical thinking, of tearing arguments apart to their core and questioning, first principle thinking, we don't have a class dedicated to that. And in a world that is advancing far faster than our education system is, the number one tool we can use to help students become successful citizens is how to think critically, and we're not teaching our kids that. Uh, that sort of ties into what we're talking about today is how are we going to educate our students on subjects that are not 100% objective. So sort of in the, in the uh, historical field, <coughs> speaking to uh, some, some of the historians that have taught me, um, have been my professors at least, there is, and, and my social studies teachers in high school, whenever, whenever, whenever something in history happens, there is a objective reality that existed that happened whenever that event occurred. So we'll take uh, let me let me pick out a random book or two on the side. Uh, we'll do the Rape of Man King by Irish Chang real quick. Um, fantastic book, horrifying. Definitely should read it if you have any interest in uh, World War Two. World War Two, I think, started in 1937. Not 1939 with the invasion of Poland, but with the Japanese invasion of China. Anyway, so uh, in Nanking, which was the Chinese capital, there was, uh, I believe, 300,000 to 400,000 people massacred, killed. Uh, who knows how many women and children were raped and uh, et cetera, all that terrible stuff that I really don't want to talk about on this podcast specifically, right now at least. There is a objective version that did happen, that did exist. That objective version, of whatever event it is, but for this we're going to use the Rape of Man King, that objective version of that event does exist. If there was a way that we could, I don't know, use Laplace's demons where we can measure all of the particles in the Newtonian universe and switch everything back, move all the particles back to 1930. Seven, I think is when I don't quote me on that. But whenever that book, uh, whenever that event happened, there is a objective reality to where you could measure and see all of the events that happened at that place at that time. There is a, a, a it's, it's objective that event happened somehow. However, the only records we have of it are primary and secondary uh, sources. So primary source documents. Uh, secondary reports from people who may have interviewed someone who was there. Um, there's sort of all of these, this, this, this information that surrounds it, and eventually one of the points of the book is that the information gets so piled on that uh, 
Japan, which has sort of kind of tried to tuck away the Wraith of Nanking and their uh, th that part of their history away, they're sort of forced to go back and, and reconcile it now that there's all this evidence out there and it's undeniable that it did happen. Um, but <coughs> because this is a human-centered event and humans are not objective measuring tools, all of these primary and secondary source documents are never 100% fact. It's just it's just the way it is. You're like when, whenever if I saw a uh, which probably people watching this are familiar with this example, but if I saw a car crash on the way home and told my account of what happened, that that account is not 100% true because there's no way that I can remember all the details. There's no way I can remember. Uh, all of the, the little events that led up to that crash or that happened in the crash. I may not remember the colors of the cars. I may not remember the, the model of the car that caused the, uh, the accident. Um, there's no way that I'm going to be able to convey everything in that situation onto paper or, in this case, video or audio or whatever, that is objective. It's just it's not replicable. You can't recreate it and measure it in a lab. You can't. You can't recreate it and see it in an objective way. You can't stand there um, unless you, even if you have video of a crash, there's a thousand different angles from eyewitnesses that could, could have seen something. Uh, maybe the camera got blocked out by a traffic barrier or something. No matter what, uh, and the camera won't be able to capture the motivations behind the wreck. Maybe it was a aggravated assault manslaughter with a car maybe it was reckless driving but we like the even the even a camera with a microphone is not going to capture the intentions behind the drivers so you're no there's no way that you're going to get the full picture of the story like there's just, it's impossible there's no way to get the full picture of of what happened in that car crash so we go to the rape of nanking we have primary source documents we have newspapers from japan uh that were published that had these two I can't remember if they were, I'm going to say generals, they were some high-ranking officer that were having beheading competitions with their with their uh, samurai swords, with their, uh, with their katanas or whatever, uh, holding heads up for a Japanese newspaper. Like, those those exist, but that Japanese newspaper, even though it's a, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a primary source, a secondary source document, because um, the newspaper editor, writer wasn't there, just got the information from the generals and the, the people that were, in Nanking. Because of that, that newspaper is still not going to capture the stories of the hundreds of people that those two guys beheaded. It's not going to capture every single thought that those guys had while they were executing those people. It's not going to capture the thoughts of the soldiers that were forcing people to line up to be beheaded. You're just every time you document something in history, you're missing out on some information. <coughs> so why, or while? So while there is this objective thing that happened, there is a objective, a a uh, in theory at least a measurable timeline that every person partook in. Okay, you are not going to get the full picture. If you fast forward 50 years from now, even with the COVID pandemic, we have all this media, we have all this documentation from all the, uh, the COVID, how COVID affected hotel business or the travel business, how it affected professional sports, how it affected high school kids in the United States, how it affected uh, world travel, how it affected the world economy. We have all this documentation, and even now, 
uh, in 2020 and 2021 when it happened, we got, everybody has a camera, everybody has a microphone, everybody has uh, a way to document what happened. 50 years from now, we are still not going to have, I mean, right now, we still don't have the story to its 100% completeness because we have not interviewed and talked to, and even if we did talk to every single person that was affected by COVID, we're still going to miss out on some of the objective information. So, unfortunately, when you're, when you're dealing with history and you're dealing with social studies and you're dealing with, with these events that happened, there, while there isn't an objective event that happened, all sorts of problems come into play whenever you try to document those actions in words or in video or in what because obviously the documents that we're dealing with unless you're talking about modern american history usually aren't in uh, or modern history are usually not in video and audio recording so w as historians you really have to contend with the fact that you're never going to get the whole picture you're never going to get the story of the like the one of the one of the uh, biggest historical historical figures in uh, the last 500 years, Napoleon. You're not going to get the entire story. Like we we have the broad general picture. We we have some great primary source documents, letters sent back and forth between him and the Russian czar. We we have we have those things documented, and we have a pretty complete picture. We're never going to get the story behind Napoleon's uh, troops, like the individual corporals that were under him or his, his infantrymen or the guys that were helping uh, that, that, that Napoleon was helping aim the cannons uh, and whatever battle it was, I can't remember what it was, but he was like in the trenches himself, not in the literal trenches, but he was like on the front lines with these men helping them aim cannons and fire and load them, which was one of the ways he got their respect because he was one to like actually fight with them. We're not going to get those guys stories. We're just not. But that, that guy has a story who was there and it's not written down. So we're never going to have the complete picture. So when, whenever you get into the classroom and you're a social studies teacher and you're dealing with essentially everything, I would say, outside of uh, economics because economics is math-based and data-driven and, and um, testable, I would say, for the most part, uh, Definitely much much more than history or civics or any of the other social sciences. Whenever you start teaching that stuff, what makes your interpretation of that historical event any more valid than a student's? Because a student may have the closer historical account. And one thing I've talked about, me and my, my, my good friend, uh, Dr. Copeland, who is my, my advisor, Henderson have talked about is that people sort of have this problem with revisionist history and revisionist history is not a bad thing if the revision gets closer and closer to the objective truth that happened if it's if it is uh, I mean just like we're talking about in this uh, the World War One book where the the revisionist quote the revisionist right after World War One the historians then, the econ the uh, economists then wanted to blame, did blame World War One largely on Germany, and there's not really an objective way. We can't go back and run a scientific experiment to figure out where the blame was because blame subjective, people's actions are subjective, the interpretation of people's actions are subjective. So it was really easy to cast blame 100% on Germany when there was a myriad of other factors that were outside of Germany's control that did play into World War One. So you come back and this which I haven't 
got I'm not gonna lie, I haven't got far enough in the book to, to know whether or not this guy's the, this German's uh, historical account, this German historian's account is uh, reliable or not. But and he claims that it was the aristocracy's fault that Germany got in the World War One, that they were the reason for aggression, that they de- they de- they deceived the German people into thinking they were fighting a defensive war. <coughs> that that revision may be closer to, to the truth than the original um, version that came out right after World War One. So the, the revision is not the problem as long as you're going – it's not a problem as long as you're heading into the direction of truth. But when you're dealing with truth in history, there is no objective truth because there is no objective way to test what happened. There is the objective event. There is a story of all those hundreds of people, thousands of people that are involved those historical events but they're not documented so there is no objective place for them so how can we teach a subjective truth based soft science to a group of students it's a hard thing to do because you have to have data driven teaching and I'm not just talking about test results in our assessments and measurements class on how to give the proper tests I'm talking about data-driven, as in the things you are teaching are backed up by science. And in the social science field, we don't really have the luxury, (coughs) especially in the historical field, we don't have the luxury of running tests to figure out what the truth was. The best things we have, generally, with the exception of modern history after the advent of TV and and the camera and everything, are primary source historical documents. Everything from the first written uh, clay tablet (coughs) <coughs> that documented barley sales, okay, all the way up to newspapers in the early 2000s about uh, 9-11, even though we have video footage of that, obviously. That stuff <coughs> is our laboratory that we use to figure out what truth is. And we, have to find, we have to find all the reliable authors, reliable researchers, reliable primary and first-hand accounts. All that stuff is hard work. And uh, especially now in this politically charged climate, 2021, it's a huge burden as a social studies teacher to deal with these uh, topics. I I really can't stress how how uh, how tough I guess is the word, how difficult it would be to be a social studies teacher teaching in a inner city, largely (coughs) black school after what happened in the summer of 2020. We we don't really get the luxury, <coughs> golly, we don't really get the luxury as social studies teachers to fall back on objective scientific tests. We have to fall back on primary source documents, primary sources, uh, journal articles, all that stuff for our validation to what we're instructing so the problem is that once again it's a human centered approach it's a human it's a human centered field is the main thing like this is a social sciences social are a human centered field and so even if you have a primary source document there's no guarantee that that person is not lying and there's not really there's not really a scientific way to figure out um, whether or not someone is telling the truth I don't tell me the polygraph is uh, or a way to discern it either. If you could polygraph everybody you're interviewing about a historical event, 
that it would be foolproof because polygraphs are have been inadmissible in court for several decades because they are not science-based approaches to telling truth because truth is a subjective uh, thing created by people and there's no way to measure it because it's a human-centered thing. <coughs> so the entire the entire basis of social studies, human-centered uh, issues, human-centered academics, human-centered historical events are always never going to be the full picture. That's just, just going to be the way it is. So how is a social studies teacher? Are we going to teach these these uh, soft sciences? And I don't know. I haven't taught yet in a classroom. Um, I know that right now I don't think I know. I am certain that someone who is coming through a four-year education degree that does not do <coughs> any of their own independent research into the field they want to teach is going to be equipped with the right tools to teach any class. Because to be a teacher, you have to have that curiosity of what the truth about the world is. And a lot of people aren't up to facing what the truth about the world is. They're just not. They want to stay with their tightly held beliefs, whether it's political, religious, whatever it is. Um, and they let that it's really easy to let that influence your teaching, especially in a soft uh, science like social studies or in an arts-based um, situation like English or like if you're teaching fine arts in high school. Because it's really hard if a, if a, if a science student, say you have a kid who, who's in an AP physics class in high school who's really smart, knows the formulas, knows uh, all the theorems, knows the theories, knows general relativity, knows quantum mechanics, knows them almost as good as a teacher. If the teacher makes a claim that is invalid, that is not backed up by those equations, it's very easy for the student to call the teacher out and say, if you, you made a mistake in your math that's not correct, let's run it back again and find the correct solution. It's really easy to do because the question and the problem are completely separate from the observer, the teacher, and the student. Whereas in social studies, if you make a claim that you believe is widely true because of your own research, your own primary source documents, and your own interpretation, and um, <coughs> a student challenges you who has done their own primary source research, has done their own reading, has done their own, their own uh, exploration into the subject, um, and they seem to have as much evidence as you do to the outside observer in, that's watching this class. There's not really a difference between the student's evidence and your evidence, even though you have two completely different interpretations of a historical event. So how do you handle the subjectivity? And I don't know. It's one thing that's bothering me about this entire field is that there there's supposed to be um, objectivity in education, but when you're not in a math or science, when you're, when you're not really in a STEM, when you're not in a STEM field, how can you be objective about what you're teaching? And you, you can't because your interpretation of data is not going to be the same as someone who is interpreting um, different data on the same event. So. <coughs> that being said, my approach 
is to be as middle of the road as possible, to be as centrist as possible. Uh, one of my friends who actually just got a job at the high school where I graduated from, uh, we were in the weight room the other day <coughs> at that school because I, I have another buddy um, who's playing uh, football at Henderson. I've been working out with him. Um, and my teacher buddy was up there. <coughs> and we're talking about how important it is to to um, remove yourself from the possibility of indoctrination in relation to your students. Sort of this constant check on yourself to make sure that you're not implicating your own beliefs as truth to your students because it is not your job it is not your job as a teacher to tell your students what is true in relation to how you view the world it is your job as a educator to show your kids how to think critically how to think logically and objectively as best as they can give them the tools give them the socratic method and then put them in situations to where they can explore the topic that you're exploring together as a teacher and a student body and then try to draw your own conclusions and discuss those conclusions and this goes for english and art as well because art obviously is like there is there is like let's look at art for example. <coughs> um, let's take a painting. Uh, this is let's do a let's do the Mona Lisa because everybody knows what the Mona Lisa is. Leonardo da Vinci had several strings of thoughts going into why he was painting the Mona Lisa. We're not going to know every single one of those thoughts, uh, and people can interpret that painting <coughs> in a thousand million different ways because that's that's what art is. Art is up for interpretation, like whatever. Whatever the viewer deems as art is art. There's no objective measurement for art. And it's really easy for a teacher to put their own worldview into that interpretation and say this is what the artist was doing when no one knows 100% what the artist was trying to accomplish through that work because we do not know every single thought that he had uh, while he was writing that painting. Some paintings we do know that the author um, may have wrote a, in a memoir or primary source, whatever, um, why they painted that painting or why they created that sculpture. But what we don't know, or what, what we do now is claim that like their societal effects changed the way they thought, that they weren't, it's not really what they were doing, it had this implication, that implication. And we sort of force our own modern morals and modern justifications into um, people that existed outside of our time, which is not really fair to them. So we're stuck. We're stuck in this spot in 2021 to where we have a supercharged political climate. It's not as charged as it was two years ago, I don't think, because the, the media is not pushing it as hard now. But I still think there is a there there is a deep division in America. And I, I don't think it's just on racial lines. Um, it's mostly on political lines, I think. I think the, the centrist um, people like me who are understand – because if you take any sort of belief on individual rights or collective responsibility and push them to their extreme, you're never going to get a uh, you're either going to get anarchy or a uh, authoritarian government. 
if you follow your ideals out to the logical conclusion. So for people like me who are sort of in the middle of the road, centrists, um, I would call myself a libertarian for the most part, are really stuck without a voice and without a party. And my fascination with history and government, civics and economics, that drove me to be a social studies teacher <clears throat> has led me to a point to where I understand now that there really is no objective answer to teacher students and that the best thing you can do is to read and study and become as knowledgeable about a topic as you possibly can that you're going to teach and then show your students the information and then give them the tools to interpret that information as best as possible. We need to teach kids how to think logically. And now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I should start an ad advocacy group for having philosophy as a uh, standard in the common core. Because we have to teach our kids how to think. Because what we're teaching them in school is not preparing them for. And what, and what we're teaching them in college, for the most part, is not preparing them for real-world success. Because our economies are changing day by day, month by month year by year way faster than our curriculum is and the only thing the only surefire thing that will keep up no matter what economy uh takes over is critical thinking and logic and we're not teaching that so i ask you viewer what is the best way to teach an objective or sorry excuse me a subjective or excuse me what is the best way to teach a objective view on a subjective science which is kind of contradictory science is supposed to be objective, obviously, but given the, uh, the field of social sciences, a lot of these interpretations are subjective, and there is no 100% consensus, uh, generally speaking, like there is in science. Like you, like, you won't find a reputable scientist who will disagree with general relativity, quantum mechanics, or Newtonian physics, even though they all three of them are not compatible with each other. Uh, you have to find a way to be objective about your subjective teaching. So, that'll wrap it up for today. Uh, be sure to read, lift weights, create, run, do all that good stuff, eat good food. I have not ate good today. It's been Memorial Day. I kind of let myself go, but I've been doing pretty good. Uh, I did bench 310 the other day. Pretty proud of myself. Overhead press 205, which is the most I've done. Trying to get my shoulders built up. Losing a little bit of weight. <clears throat> it's been good. I feel, I feel healthier now than I have since um, high school athletics, and I'm really kind of proud of myself for that. It feels good to be alive and to be human and to be living in this experience with all of y'all. So make sure you read. If you want to check out these books, uh, The Origins of the First World War, Controversies and Consensus, The Death of Democracy, The Fall of the Weimar Republic. This talks about Germany between World War I and World War II, The Rise of Hitler. Uh, Michu Kaku, Michio Kaku, however you say his name, Parallel World quantum mechanics, um, quantum computing, time travel, uh, all science-based, one of the best cosmologists in the game. Great author. Check that out. Uh, and JP's book, uh, best-selling Beyond Order. Check it out. I uh, can't wait to read it, dive into it. I read the first 10 or 15 pages um, in Target the other day, as a matter of fact. But anyway, make sure you read, stay disciplined, work out, eat good, live well, and I will see you all later. Thank you all for tuning in. This is the Done Before Dawn podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Skin and Bones Jones. Check me out on Instagram at Skin and Bones Jones, uh, at DBD Podcast on Twitter. And um, I think that's it.
Yeah. All right, everybody. Love y'all. See y'all next time.